Hello and welcome to the European Football Show here on the Football CFB YouTube channel. Um, delighted to be joined by James Rowe, the Chief Football Writer for Football CFB, a man who's interviewed so many players and managers over the last few years that it's going to be a, a, pl a privilege to do a show with you, James. Not only have we got you on the site, we've got you on the show. Indeed, lovely to be on and a, a great format as well. I mean, I think we've uh, come up with a masterstroke on this one because it gives opportunity to uh, to let people know about different facts and information that they might not know. And also uh, when pulling it back to potential interviews that have been done and, uh, and letting people know something that they didn't already know before and uh, questions that they can send in as well. I'm sure they'll be uh, intrigued with a young Scot doing really, really well in Scotland and a, and a British guy based in the Netherlands for more than a decade in terms of the perspective and insight that we can give. So I'm um, really, really looking forward to this new venture. Absolutely. And, and in terms of the show, you can follow um, both of us on Twitter. You can follow myself at Callum CFB. You can follow James at James Rowe NL. You can follow Football CFB at Football CFB. And the beauty of this show is you can get involved in the comments. And when you get involved in the comments, we can bring your question up and we can answer it directly. But our, our first topic today is about Donny van de Beek. I mean, he, the question that's on everyone's lips, James, is is he out of favour already at Manchester United? He arrived this summer. There was a lot of fanfare when he arrived. Um, the fans were excited by it. Edwin van der Sar mm. had some, some very, very kind words about him. But he's not playing. Um, what, what do you make of the situation? I think it's very strange. Um, I think it's very strange. I did a lot of Manchester United fan podca podcasts when he signed Gallum. And I was telling people that Manchester United haven't just signed a very good footballer, but they've also signed a great character. Someone who's got a real, um, a real good work ethic. Somebody who works in the interests of the team and will never complain. And um, I think it was always going to be a slow burner. And I think he was professional enough to realise that going from Ajax to Manchester United, that he will play where he where he's asked to play. I mean, I never expected him to tear it up straight away within the first five games. But you have to remember, you know, scoring and assisting in his opening games as well. That also plays a massive part. But it's also quite well known before COVID struck, it, was, it looked to be only a question of time before he would uh, transfer to Real Madrid. And then all of a sudden he ends up at Manchester United. And um, the, the most important thing, thing for him is he's got to play. And um, one thing that made me think, uh, recently we had Davy Classy return to Ajax from Werder Bremen and uh, obviously signing for Everton many years ago and uh, being a Koeman signing and then being marginalised by Sam Allardyce. And I, it made me think about, um, I'm not trying to compare the two players in terms of quality because they're two completely different players. But I wonder if, in the case of Davy Classy, was Allardyce ever able to recognise the technical ability that a player like David Glassy had. And in the case of Solskjaer, is he really able to recognise the real top qualities that van der Beek has? I'm not expecting Manchester United to play in a style of Ajax, but especially being very, very young, making progress at an international level as well, the most important thing for any player, especially when they move to another country, is they, um, they need to play. And um, as you say, interviewing many professional players and managers the last four years, I've spoken to many Dutch players who've made that move. And some of them, it's really worked out. Others, it hasn't. And uh, the most important thing is that he gets game time. 
Uh, Van der Beek has given an interview to the Dutch NOS not so long ago where he said that he was really well looked after by the club. You know, they were put up in, um, they, they arranged a, a house for him and his partner. You know, it wasn't too far away from the training ground. He was able, he was actually brought to and from the training ground by a chauffeur. And he was really settling in well. And um, I just think it's important for him to play because if he doesn't play, you know, January is not too far away. And I'm not suggesting that he would leave on loan in January, but it could well be something that could be a little bit disillusioned for him. And it just goes to show that timing is everything in football. You know, I don't know if he was personally waiting for Real Madrid. It's the biggest club in the world. But then obviously the biggest club in Britain comes in for you and it's a good opportunity for him. But um, playing is the most important thing. But one of the thing, one thing I can't really understand is he scored on the opening day, I believe. I believe he, he was important in the League Cup, scoring, making assists as well. Surely Solskjaer would recognise these qualities. And, um, you know, trying to, trying to be a smart Alec, you know, that could somewhat bring Solskjaer down in that respect. Absolutely, and and I think, in in my opinion, I think when when you bring a player in of his undoubted quality, he has to be in the squad. I mean, you talk about the statistics; he's, he's scored goals when he's played, he's looked lively when he's played, and you're looking at a situation where, despite the fact that whenever he's been on the park, he's 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 contributed well, he still doesn't get in. I mean, Paul Pogba was dropped from the Manchester United lineup for two games in the trot, and he still didn't get a start, which which baffled me and. And it leads us on, James, to, to our listener's question. Now, obviously, this is a section we can dip in and out of. It's from Burnley Red, mm. Michael Burnley. Um, he's got in touch to say, Van der Beek can play box-to-box or in the right in that matter position at United. Surely it's only a matter of time before he starts regularly. What do you guys think? I hope so. I hope so. But also, one factor which is forgotten by a lot of British media is Van der Beek also captain the Ajax. And, um, you know, I've spoken to a lot of players that have come through the IX Youth Academy that play elsewhere. And they always say about the education they receive, both on and off the pitch, you know, respecting your teammates, respecting your manager, respecting your opponents. And, um, you know, he's also, he's also got great leadership skills, which can also be conducive to a team like Manchester United. And it's one thing to play for the traditional top three. It's another thing to captain them. She's obviously got amazing skills, but as I say, he would have hoped it to be a, a little bit better. You know, you need, when you make a transfer, you need to feel comfortable. I remember speaking to John Verhoek, who, um, who when he was now playing in Germany. He signed for Rennes, uh, making the switch from the Netherlands. And he was telling me that even in the training session, the pace was so frenetic. It, was, it really opened his eyes. And maturity of age. You would hate people like to marginalise the Eredivisie and say and um, but uh, I've as someone who's covered it for more than a decade I've always said it's an acquired taste and it's uh, there are good players here you just have to um, to look hard enough and you will find them well, well, as you say, James, I mean, the proof's in the pudding when you think of the players that have um, come through the Ajax Academy and the Academy of other Dutch clubs and went on to make an impact, not only in the Premier League, but also across Europe as well. Um, and I think it's important that, as Michael says there in his question, that yes, he can play in a couple of positions for United and as a matter of time, in his opinion. I, I would agree with that, but at the same time, as I've, as I've said around a couple of minutes ago, I still don't understand when Paul Pogba is dropped that he doesn't get in. But but as you've said, Solskjaer has to eventually realise the undoubted quality of the player 
and, and begin to start them uh, more often. And and in terms of Manchester United and, and, and Solskjaer, James, do you think he's the best man for the job at this moment in time? No, I think the job's too big for him. But that's just my personal opinion. I mean, it's one thing being a former player. We're talking about the biggest club in England and the biggest club in Britain. And uh, it's a huge, massive institution. Huge. You know, made a tremendous... When you go you need to have a... Um, a good sustained period behind you of good experience and Solskjaer doesn't have that and um, I'd like to think that Manchester United will eventually get down to brass tacks where they realise that because you know clubs like Real Madrid Bayern Munich uh, Barcelona Ajax even they are huge massive clubs but they are winning machines where they've got to get it right all the time. And obviously nothing, nothing is set in stone in football. That's why we all love it. You know, it's completely unpredictable. Nothing is set in stone. But um, I would have expected Manchester United to to have realised this, you know, before now. But obviously, you know, maybe there's some things with the ownership or maybe it's because he was a, was a former player. But obviously Manchester United fans will know more than, than what I do. But um, I personally just I personally think the job's too big for him. What I would say um, in response to that, I think last season he did um, a good job when you consider where they were um, before Bruno Fernandes came in. I think third place was was the best he could have finished when you consider how good Liverpool and, and Manchester City were. So last season I think he, he, he delivered. Um, obviously in terms of Manchester United, his third place and not winning the trophy good enough. No, it's not. But given the circumstances he, he had, I think he achieved. But on the other hand... This was the summer for the, for the owners to back him. And mm. you, you can argue that the likes of Cavani and Tellez have come in who, who may improve the squad, but they, they've come into the team on deadline day. And I think that's going to take a period of time to settle. But it will be interesting to see how things develop because this is a big season for Solskjaer. He's in his third year, really, at the club as manager. And, and you always get judged on a, on a three-year cycle in football. Some managers get judged in even just a one-year cycle. So... I think he will know this is a big season and that if he finishes outside the top four, regardless of whether he's a club legend, which he undoubtedly is, he, he will be moved on because that's what not just Manchester United, but any of the, the top clubs in England do. And, and and this kind of brings me on, I suppose, now to our second topic, James, where Ajax at the weekend won 13-0. Can you just explain the, the reaction to that result in, in the Netherlands? Uh, one of shock. One of shock. It's the biggest ever, ever win, eclipsing the 12-1 from, I believe, Ajax against Vitesse from, I believe, back in the 70s, I think it might have been. And Faye for Faye, they are, they've done tremendously well in recent years, Faye for Faye. You know, they're based in Venlo, which is not far from the German border. I interviewed their former manager, Maurice Stein, who's now at Nuckbreda. I interviewed him back in 2017. You know, Venlo is famous for like their cake making and, uh, you know, obviously being very close to the German border. And would you believe they used to play on they used to play on uh, AstroTurf on, a, on what we call a plastic pitch, but due to staying up in the area of when the season was curtailed, they managed to change it to grass. And um, yeah, it's a very very strange result. You know, Ajax after only uh, I believe six games to have a um, 
have a goal difference of plus 21. And here in the Netherlands, it, go, it can come down to goal difference. We saw that in 2007 when PSV won the title on the last day. And, um, you know, it's a long old season. I think people forget how much for a long old season it is. But, uh, yeah, poor old Faye for Faye. But I remain, I, remain, um, I remain confident that it's a freak result. You know, this doesn't happen. This happens once in a blue moon. And for the people to take it and run and say that the Eredivisie is completely, uh, is, com- is not a very good league and is a farmer's league, uh, I think they're being very disingenuous because there's different facets. Uh, and I'll talk about one of them in particular in a minute that not many Premier League teams know about. And if this was implemented in the Premier League, you would have a completely different thinking Absolutely. And way, of, way of approaching matters. Well, that leads me on just before we come to that point. Another question, and this time from, from Darren Tinmouth, who is a massive fan of, of South Shields Football Club. He's got in touch to say, does Ajax 13 goal win yesterday add weight to the pro side of the European Premier League debate? Or does it just emphasise the gulf in quality between the top and bottom of the Eredivisie? Well, I'd like to... It's a great question, first and foremost. And I'd like to elaborate with the one facet that maybe not many people know about. Here in the Netherlands, in the Eredivisie, every participant of the Eredivisie is obliged to hand in their club accounts to the Dutch FA, upon which they get financially supervised. They're put in categories, you know, from very healthy to not very healthy. And if you, if the FA find out, if the D- Dutch Carnival Bay find out that you've been spending beyond your means, you can receive sanctions that range from anything from initial warnings to points deduction to your professional license being revoked, where you are put back into amateur football. This happened to Harlem and this happened to Ebbesay Rosendahl, who were playing Eredivisie football as recently as 2006. Now both clubs are playing on a Saturday afternoon with the amateurs. Can you imagine if they, um, if they implemented this in the Premier League? You know, people would, would find it so strange. But it's also something that you can see in, um, in, in company life. You know, when you sign a contract here in the Netherlands, it has a start date, it has a finish date. You know, in terms of overlapping, in terms of the probation period and things like that, you know, and the Dutch FA are, are it's about protecting clubs. You know, we see that PSV are paying Mario Goetze a, a, a humongous salary, uh, Sangari as well. I, I thought I think it will be of interest, you know, but everything has to match in terms of player sales, in terms of accounts. And that's why you that's why you see, for example, uh, manager changeovers and managers coming into clubs that you didn't necessarily expect. For example, Adelie Costa, who has a lot of experience at Willem Tvey, you know, Henk Fraser as well at Sparta Rotterdam, did very well at Vitesse. And- making there about the, the era of the VZ and, and the finances, I think, is very important. It's an important um, topic when, when you consider that the Premier League has had lots of talk about a European Super League being implemented or, or Project Big Picture and others alongside it as well. So that's definitely another thing that that is, is, is really important. Um, I can see that James has just dropped off there. Um, a question, though, came in from Grant Campbell. Grant has asked, how far away are a Dutch team from winning one of Europe's major tournaments, the Europa or Champions League? PSV lost to Granada, as he said, in their opening league game. Um, Altmar won in Naples. Ajax lost to Liverpool in the first game out. What I would say, first of all, with, with Ajax is that that's a particularly difficult game, of course, against Liverpool, a team that that, that won. Um, 
the the Champions League as as early as as, as recently as, as a couple of seasons ago. So I think it's important to emphasise Ajax had probably, if not the toughest, one of the toughest games in Europe. Um, when you consider that PSV lost to Granada, I think that's an interesting um, an interesting game to, to to focus on because PSV, as, as James alluded to before he dropped off there, would. They're paying a lot of money to, to Mario Goza. And I think it's important that that people are aware of that. Um that they, they are investing money. They they want to make an impact. And um it's it's important that people say that. And James, you're back. Sorry, it was just I was just talking there about Grant Campbell's question. Grant asked about how far away are a Dutch team from winning one of Europe's major tournaments, um, the Europa or Champions League. I, I was just saying when, when when you were away there that obviously Ajax against Liverpool, that's arguably the toughest game you can have in the Champions League. They, they've won the tournament very recently. PSV's defeat to Granada, I said, was an interesting one because, as you alluded to, they're paying Mario Gotts an absolute fortune. How far, how far do you think a Dutch team is from winning one of those major tournaments? Well... Um, Ajax reached the Europa League final in 2017 and were beaten by Manchester United. They were a hair's breadth away from uh, reaching the Champions League final uh, when they were beaten when they um, withdrew with uh, with Tottenham. So everything is about timing and taking your opportunity. And and the reason why that particular um, when that particular um, hurdle they didn't get over it to reach the final, a lot of Ajax fans realised that this this is an opportunity that that might not come round again. Uh, Granada, if people look carefully, have done very well in recent years. And um, I expected them to beat PSV, and they did. And um, obviously, final doing very well under Dick Advocat, but um, a tremendous opportunity for Ajax. But, um, you know, they, they really did have to take that opportunity. But, you know, you can't, you can't have a complete monopoly on a sport. You know, there are surprises. You know, Greece won two, uh, Euro 2004. Um, Porto winning the Champions League, although Porto are a massive club. You know, for example, there's, there are surprises still in football. And that's why we love the game, because it's so unpredictable. You can have all the money in the world, but the fact remains is you've got 11 against 11 and it's unpredictable. And that's why we, that's why we keep coming back for more. I mean, who would, have, who would have thought that Aston Villa would beat the reigning champions 7-2? You know, nobody would have thought that. Aston Villa brought diligently and have learned from their mistakes, invested well and have given themselves an opportunity to grow. Look at Leeds United with championship players in some cases are tearing the Premier League apart with a, a truly world-class manager. And I still think that, that I think it's still underreported that what Marcello Bielsa has done. I really do. It's an amazing, amazing story and uh, I think the best is yet to come for Leeds United as well Just staying on Europe we've got another question and Michael Burney again has got in touch to ask he says I I personally think that Marseille and Leipzig will pose Manchester City and Manchester United tough challenges this week would you agree? Yes, yes I would, Marseille are a huge club, massive I mean you could argue they're the biggest, biggest club in France I mean, people like to think about the money of PSG. People like to refer to France as a farmer's league. But if you've got um, a league of Marseille, St Etienne, Paris Saint-Germain, Lille, Nice, Rennes, Monaco, it's not a farmer's league. It's far from it. I think I included Lyon in that in that, um, that piece there. Marseille, I think, being at home, they won yesterday against Lorient. You know, they would normally have a passionate crowd behind them. I mean, I've, I've experienced that crowd and they are absolutely 
bonkers. I went to the Europa League final in Lyon in 2018, Atletico Madrid against Marseille. I was sat um, in the neutral section, if you can call it that, and um, I was in Lyon. But if you didn't tell me the different, I think I was in Marseille, surrounded by white white tops everywhere, even chanting the name of Chris Waddle. Even even then, I remember speaking to a few um, a few Marseille fans sitting in and around me, and when they realised I was British, they said, "Oh, in English." They said, "Oh, uh, Chris Waddle, you're English, Chris Waddle. What do you think about Chris Waddle?" Because he, even after a quarter of a century more than a quarter of a century, they realised what Chris Waddle did for them. And it's just an amazing uh, amazing achievement what he did for the club. And Glenn Hoddle as well at Monaco. That also mustn't be forgotten. But uh, yeah, Marseille are a massive club. Leipzig as well. They've made tremendous progress in recent years. I was very fortunate to speak to Peter Gulashi, the Hungarian goalkeeper, a few years ago now. And he, talk, he spoke about the journey that the club had been on and, and the input of Ralph Ranić. You know, everybody listens to what he's got to say. You know, Julian Nagelsmann, you know, to manage a club in the Bundesliga at the age of um, 28 is no mean feat. And he will only get better. So I think it'll be two very, very interesting games. It, it's, they certainly will be. And I think you, you've touched on it there, the coaches. I mean, Julian Nagelsmann is, is, is an incredible coach. He's definitely going to go on to, to manage one of the elite clubs in Europe. And I don't mean that to be disrespectful to, to Leipzig, I think. The project there is is exciting. Um, they're investing money in, in young players, players that that want to develop and can develop, and and they've performed well. You look at the likes of Timo Werner, who's moved on. They've still got guys like Marcel Sabitzer, who is an ex- excellent player as well. Um, Upa Meccano at the back, who's been linked with the elite clubs in Europe. So that's going to be an exciting project to, to watch in his career as well. And then mm-hmm. with Marseille, you've got Andre Villas-Boas, who yeah. is a manager who people who are listening to this in the UK will know from his time at Chelsea and his time at Tottenham. He, he's been around the block a wee bit now, but he's still a young man and he's someone who the players had to convince to stay on this season for the yeah. Champions League. He was planning to move on, but the the players clearly love playing under him and, and you would think that they will pose a challenge. But just staying on managers, James, I want to go to our last main topic, which is how important is man management? And the reason we bring this up is because there was the following quote from Ian Evett, who manages Bolton Wanderers, about one of the young goal- a young goalkeeper that he has. I've just spoken to Billy. He's a fantastic young goalkeeper with lots of attributes, but he cost us the first goal, in my opinion, at Barrow on Tuesday, maybe the second one as well, and then today. I am now publicly saying to him, man up. I've had these conversations privately. This is a man's game. Three points are at stake and my team deserved to win. Your thoughts on those comments, James? Um, well, I think it's an oversight first and foremost. Um, I always thought that defending was collective. I, I was always brought up playing as a right back. I didn't play to a very high level, but I was always brought up that defending is collective. You don't single out one particular player. Um, I'd like to think that Ian, Ian Everett will see this as an oversight and see this as a, a glaring uh, omission to something that he shouldn't have done. We have both spoken to professional managers at all different levels. And the most important thing is you are managing not just players, you're managing human beings. And I've spoken to many different players who've told me about managers that have really helped them. Everything from youth team managers to, uh, to, to first team managers and first team coaches. And when I read the um, 
the quote it made me think about an interview i did with a form, with a, a dutch goalkeeper playing in denmark in the Grothausen. and he was playing for Arlo den haag and was a, a born and bred amsterdammer uh, was a huge ajax fan and obviously the rivalry between ajax and uh, and den haag and um he made a blunder in a game against uh, utrecht i believe it was and uh, he was literally castrated by the fans and, and people around him, you know, and he was he was so upset that he actually sought professional help and he managed to get over it. But the thing that worries me about the comments is it's a young 20-year-old goalkeeper who is going to be playing professional football for another 15 years. And you wonder if he's going to be able to forget something like this. And for Ian Everett to say, you know, it's a man's game, we only have to look at the progression that's happening in the women's game. So it's not just a man's game anymore. It's a world game. You only have to look at the coaching spread all around Europe. Spread all around Europe. We have um, Leeds United are, are coached by an Argentinian who's a world-class manager. The Open Club is Germany. It's, um, it's got Liverpool playing some tremendous, tremendous football. You know, we've also got good homegrown managers such as uh, Chris Wilder as well. He's doing an amazing job, even though they're struggling at Sheffield United. It's not just a man's game anymore. Like everything in life, including people, things evolve and people evolve. And I just think it's an oversight for me and Ever. And I think he'll come to regret it. But you wonder about the um, the young player as well, because, you know, people talk about uh, the mental side of the game. It's absolutely massive huge you, you know these are these are elite athlete athletes who the cameras are on them there's so many cameras and so many games and they have about the mental coaching and things and i remember something that um danny cowley said to me when i interviewed him when he was manager of lincoln he said you know that the longer you stay at a club you know exactly what you need in terms of personnel in terms of character in terms of what you're looking for and, and to, to, to bring it full circle, I'm reminded um, very much of what Ian Morris of Shelbourne told me. Ian Morris played for Chris Wilder and Alan Neal when he was at Northampton. And he dislocated his kneecap. And Chris Wilder even said, it's the worst injury I've ever seen. And Ian Morris was so stricken that he thought he feared for his livelihood and he feared for his career. And Chris Wilder said to him, we are going to get you the best treatment we can get you. You're going to come back and you're going to be part of our promotion push. And he was. And when Ian Morris made his first steps onto the training field, he was given a, a round of applause by his teammates. And Chris Wilder gave a speech by saying, look, here is someone who fought the worst. And look what happens when you fight and we fight together as a team and as management. And, you know, all managers, you know, they're, in, they're under a lot of pressure. This isn't championship manager we're talking about here. This is real people's lives. And this is why when I write my written pieces for Football CFB, you always look further. You always look at the human element. You know, a player going to a foreign climate, having to learn a language first and foremost. I'm not a professional footballer, but I had to do the same when I emigrated from the UK to the Netherlands many years ago. So if we end the segment in terms of, from my point of view of, I'd like to think that Ian Everett will, will learn from this. He, he's got to learn from it. You know, you, you can't, if you start to kind of close yourself off a little bit, when you start to do that as a manager, things can start to unravel very quickly. So hopefully he'll learn from it. And the young player as well will realise, as you rightly say, he's on loan from Fleetwood Town. 
he's will um, he's got a, a long career in front of him doesn't matter what level but he's made it to be a professional footballer and he should take he should take a lot of pride in that Absolutely, and and then to, to be fair, there's there's always two sides to the story, and and Ian Everett has spoken today, spoken to the Bolton News, and he said the terminology I used should have been better, and I want to apologise for any offence that I have caused. I've spoken to um, the goalkeeper this morning, and he understands what I meant. He agrees with the sentiment, in fact, and there is no problem at all. Mm. Now that's all well and good, but it comes twenty four hours too late for me. And crucially, it reminds me of, of two quotes from two Arsenal um, legends who, who obviously I'm sure, James, that you, you admire in, in Arsene Wenger and Dennis Bergkamp. Arsene Wenger famously said, if you put the wrong petrol in the car, yeah. um, it's not going very far. For a human being, it's exactly the same. You have yeah. to prepare the right way and treat people the right way. And Dennis yeah. Bergkamp, he, max, he, he basically echoes that. There are yeah. times not to coach. They are just to step in and show them and tell them. Sometimes it's better to let someone make a mistake because they'll learn more from the mistake than being told what to do. And I think those two quotes sum up what Ian Everts may be feeling now 24 hours later with the beauty of hindsight. Yes, but those two players, that manager and that player in particular as well, they both had a, a better footballing education than what Ian Everts had. And their attitude to the game is completely different to the one that Ian ever has. So that also has to be said as well. And um, Dennis Bilekamp is, well, I'm not just saying it because I'm based in his home city. I interviewed his nephew, Roland, many years ago. And I remember something that I asked him because it was an interview about Roland Bilekamp, who also played for Brighton and Excelsior Rotterdam. And I went to Ekesay-Volvac where he was playing his football. And I said, I said to him, this is an interview about you. I said, but um, I said, this is your interview, but I'd like to ask you about your uncle. I said, your uncle is one of the greatest Dutch players of his generation. And certainly, in my opinion, the greatest ever Arsenal player I've ever seen. I said, did you ever have any, um, did he ever give you any good advice? You know, did you, uh, did you ever take anything specific from him? And he said, well, to be honest, I didn't see him very much because obviously he's playing football and so was Roland as well. He said, but when I would watch Arsenal, I, I became a fan because and I knew he was playing and you wouldn't see him for 80 minutes. And then he'd all of a sudden give an assist or give a pass. And uh, it's just an amazing, amazing footballer. I mean, I, I've, I, can, I can understand Dennis in his mother tongue now, which makes it even more special. Because you understand, I mean, his English was always impeccable because they learn English from the age of five here in the Netherlands. But when you learn Dutch and you understand every word that comes out of their mouth, it makes it even more special. And I, I hope that he returns to the club one day because... Uh, He's by far and away the greatest Arsenal player I've ever seen. But he keeps such a low profile, um, Callum. You wouldn't believe. You don't. You don't hear a peep out of him. You. You don't. I mean, you might see him at a book signing of his of, of his former of his former agent, for example, or current agent. But for the rest, he leads a very very quiet life indeed. And and as you say, he's an absolute legend of the game. Before we go, James, we've got three more questions. Um, two are quite similar. Uh, I'll take this one on first myself, if you don't mind. Thoughts yep. on the European Premier League being talked about? This is from Regan Stevenson, who also hosts an incredible podcast. Good shout out there um, to Regan. Uh, keep up the good work. My answer to you, Regan, is um, I don't like the idea. Um, I don't like the idea of a European Premier League with the, the format they're talking about. They're talking about potentially having 16 or 18 teams. They're talking about a group phase where you would play each team home and away. And... A, a tournament that would then follow in the summer that would be a knockout tournament. Now, that would be 
potentially quite exciting come the summer. But you consider that at the moment there are 38 domestic games in England and Scotland and, and other nations, maybe have 34 or 36. The, the European um, Premier League would would involve a lot of fixtures. You're playing home and away, so you're talking about at least 18 games. That's before you even get to the knockout. Now, it ties in perfectly with Project Big Picture, which the Premier League clubs who proposed that said wasn't linked. They said um, we were doing this for the good of the English game and the English national team. Well, if you look at Project Big Picture, they wanted to get rid of the Carabao Cup, get rid of cup replays, um, and, and obviously reduce the number of teams in the Premier League, which would, who would have guessed it, <laughs> free up more space to play even more games in, in Europe. So I, I think it's it's a, a proposal that I personally think serves an elite few and doesn't serve the greater good of the game. And and as, as, as you know, Regan, as I know and, and James knows, the pyramid in football is, is, is vital. Manchester United and the English pyramid are as important as Mansfield Town. Now, some people listening to this might think that's ludicrous, but you need a pyramid. You look at a club like Exeter City, who have made around £4 million from selling academy products in the last few years. Clubs like Exeter are needed to develop talent so that that talent can move on. I mean, Ollie Watkins, one of the players I'm talking about, he's lighting up the Premier League at Aston Villa. If he Mm. wasn't Exeter and didn't have a ground in there, would he have ever made it to the Premier League? Who knows? But the answer is probably, probably unlikely. So... For me, I think it's important that we protect the pyramid, not only in England, in Scotland, Germany, France, Spain, Portugal, every, the, the Netherlands, every major European league, in, and even the minor European leagues, because the pyramid system in, in European football of promotion, relegation and daring to dream, for me, James, has to stay. I fully agree. I fully agree. It's the bloodline of the sport. The bloodline of the sport. If you do this kind of thing, would a Leicester story, will that, will that ever happen again? And that's the charm of it. Nobody expected Leicester to win the league. Aston Villa were dead and buried at the end of last season. Nobody expected them to stay up. They stayed up, invested well and smashed the current champions. Nobody saw that coming. We love the sport because it's unpredictable. When you start to close things off, when you kind of stop relegation, change is part of life. My club isn't the same club of 10 years ago. Your club isn't the same club of 10 10 years ago. People change, sport changes. But you've got to embrace that change. Leeds United, an amazing story. A fantastic addition to the Premier League. You look at the teams in the Premier League this season. You look at the Championship. Reading are brought really well. Reading are doing well in the Championship. The most important thing is to kind of give people the opportunity that, that progress can be made. And that's the most important thing. And when you start to close ranks and and the real football fan, regardless of country, the real football fan doesn't want this. And we are fans, not customers. We're fans. We are in a a, a real privileged position, the both of us, speaking to players and managers, speaking about clubs that you've signed for a club and your life has changed. You know, I recently spoke to David Bates when he signed for, uh, for Hamburg. He's now currently on loan at Circle Brugge. Really enjoying his, his football at Circle Brugge. Circle Brugge are not the biggest team in the world, but he's really enjoying his football. And the most important thing is to keep the pyramid, keep things as they are. But unfortunately, with the commercialism of the game, um, you know, people will push and push and push until they get what they want. So hopefully, but uh, common sense will prevail. We can keep the pyramid and keep keep on enjoying our football. 
this follows on to a question um, from John uh, Bumble JB, another uh, guy who who has a fantastic podcast called the Scottish Football Forums Podcast. Check it out if you're a fan of Scottish football. Um, John's got in touch to ask, are we going to see a change this season in the big five leagues or will Bayern, PSG, Juventus and co continue to dominate? Now, before you give your answer, James, with that, I would say, I'll be honest with you, I fully expect Bayern Munich to, 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 to win the Bundesliga. I think Dortmund are clearly doing well um, under, under Lucien Favre. I think they're, they're a club that many enjoy watching. They've got exciting talents like Jadon Sancho, uh, Erling Brut Haaland um, and, and others. Reina coming through as well, for instance. They're, they're a team that I really enjoy watching and I think if they could keep a nucleus of those players for a few years, they could challenge and they could win the title. But such as football and such as the, the ecosystem of football. Unfortunately for a club like Dortmund, um, many of their better players tend to move on. I mean, you, you think of Atletico Madrid under Diego Simeone. I mean, yes, he won a title, but quite a lot of the time his best players end up moving on. Um, some come back like Costa or Torres, but but a lot of the time they move on. Um, Paris Saint-Germain, I think, I think, to be honest with you, John, I think they will win Ligue 1. Um, I think they... They clearly, clearly have an incredible financial advantage over every other team in France. You consider that the fee that was paid for Neymar, a world record that that smashed the previous world record. You think of the fee for for Kylian Mbappe, an incredible talent. No other club in France can compete with that. So they have to be favourites. And if they don't get over the line, it's a monumental failure considering the financial advantage that they have. Juventus is an interesting one, though. AC Milan have started the season well. They they came to, to Scotland, as, as you'll know, John, and, and they comprehensively beat Celtic. They were very impressive on the night. Um, Celtic improved in the second half, but the damage was done in the first half, and Milan were impressive, it really has to be said. Um, for Juventus, they've changed coach quite a few times. They've got Andrea Pirlo, who is an icon of football. I've not met a football fan yet, James, that doesn't like Andrea Pirlo, and I'm sure they'll wish him well. But when you're trying to maintain success... Giving yeah. the job to a rookie manager at any level is a risk. He was initially brought in to manage the under-23s and a week later yeah. gets a main job. So I yeah, think it's yeah. going to be interesting to watch that one. Yeah, absolutely. And experience will be key. Experience will be key. And I'm sure there'll be a couple of uh, of teams that run them close. Like Atletico are currently second. Real Sociedad are doing very well in Spain as well. As you say about Dortmund as well by Leverkusen under Peter Boss will also uh, continue to improve. Wolfsburg as well. You know, I'm sure there'll be a couple that will be pushed. Um, would you mind if I give a short anecdote about Lucien Favre? Because you mentioned this. No problem. And I'll just give a, a little anecdote. Of, um, I interviewed Fabian Johnson of Mönchengladbach, previously played for Mönchengladbach, and um, he had Lucien Favre as, of his, as his manager, and he was playing as, um, playing as a left-back. And they were training one day, and Lucien Favre is bellowing out from the sidelines. Uh, when you're in that position there with the ball, use your left foot. And Fabian Johnson thinks to himself, what does that matter? What does it really matter? And then he realised that the small, minute differences, even in terms of what foot you use for helping to relieve pressure on a defensive situation, even in training, can be absolutely decisive. And um, that's what he took from Lucien Favre, who I think is a very underrated manager. I think he'll end up as manager of Switzerland eventually. And... um, I watched his Nice team play against Ajax in uh, in the Champions League qualifiers and it was a 2-2 draw and they looked fantastic. 
they looked really, really good. The only question mark I have about him is, is he enough of a winner? He, I mean, they, no doubt his Dortmund side and his Nice side before that and Mönchengladbach played tremendous football. My only question mark about him, is he, is he enough of a winner? Because I, I remember when Arsenal were looking for a new manager after um, Arsene Wenger, his name was mentioned, and I, I said exactly the same thing. You know, he's a very good manager. And this is what I mean on a, a situation like this, on a podcast like this, speaking about managers that don't get mentioned very often. I mean, I'm sure everybody knows about the Dortmund players, but I thought it was a nice opportunity to mention about what the manager can also do. The, the last question we've got, James, is one that I'm really excited to, to ask you. Thank you to everyone for answer, for getting your questions in. Grant Campbell, John Bleasdale, who I'm about to come to, um, Regan Stevenson, um, and, and many others as well. Your questions and your, your insight is, is welcomed by James and myself. And the last question, James... I'll be honest with you, I'm going to leave this one to you. Um, I know you, you've interviewed many players who've played under this man. Is Ronald Koeman the right man for Barcelona? No. No, he's not the right man for Barcelona. He's an opportunist. It's very much an opportunist move. Um, it, um, I'll elaborate on it shortly, but this is a man who's coveted the Barcelona job ever since he became a, pro a professional football manager. And even back then, he was at Vitesse. And although Vitesse were doing very well, I think he managed to get them into Europe even. I think they played Liverpool, I think, memory serves me rightly. Um, he went on to manage Ajax, went on to manage Benfica. Uh, to give you an example of his character, I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, the Dutch NOS, the kind of Dutch BBC, if you like, national um, broadcasting service, they're doing an excellent job. They're very, very good. I remember them, see, them doing a, a, a video on him when he was Benfica manager. And they went to Lisbon and they said, um, they said, how's your Portuguese? Do you speak Portuguese to the players? He said, no, I speak Spanish to the players. They all understand. And Benfica are a massive club. If you are manager of Benfica and you can't speak Portuguese, you've got, you got a bit of a problem. And then he signs for Valencia. He's literally signed his contract, but ink is not even dry. And then he says that this is an op a great opportunity and a great step to eventually become Barcelona manager one day. He's managing the third biggest club in Spain. This is before the Simeone era. And one of the things that I couldn't believe when I heard it is uh, the Michael Ball interview that was recently published. Michael Ball was told by a surgeon, if you play on a plastic pitch, you are risking your career. So Michael Ball relays this information to Ronald Koeman. Ronald Koeman doesn't understand it and marginalise him and get, keeps him out of the squad where he's training on his own. It was Jan Wouters who famously broke... Um, Paul Gascoigne's elbow back in 1993, who actually expressed sympathy to Michael Ball by saying, you know, we'll, we'll get you, we'll get you through this. We'll look after you. You're going to be okay. And it just goes to show a little bit of the nasty side of Koeman because it's always been there. It's always been there. He had a health episode here in Amsterdam when he was out cycling, when he was Dutch national team manager, where he was taken into, um, was taken into hospital for observation. There was never anything untoward. It was just observation. It was just a health episode. And um, then Barcelona come in for him. And I mean, all of a sudden he's off. He had the clause inserted in his contract at the Dutch Carnival Bay that if Barcelona come in for him, he can leave. 
And the, I mean, more for the Dutch FA for allowing such a clause. But he's took the job because this is his last chance to become Barcelona manager. But it's the toughest league in the world in terms of away games. You are not going away to uh, Arnhem, to Vitesse and to Venlo and to Heerenveen, although they can be difficult away days domestically. You are going away to San Sebastian. You're going away to um, to Valencia, to Sevilla, to, um, to play Villarreal away is also difficult. And I think... He's only took the job for sentimental re- reasons. I mean, they're currently quite low in the um, in La Liga. I, I'll be I'll be surprised if he lasts for season. In all honesty, because he's only took this job because it, the chance isn't going to come round again after this time, and it's for him to be able to say, "I was Barcelona manager." But when he was assistant to Louis Van Gaal, did an amazing job. Did an absolutely amazing job as assistant when Van Gaal was there, but it's just the kind of um, the arrogance of the man, you know, to fail at Southampton, to fail at um, to fail at Everton in particular, and invest heavily, you know. Also, as well, when they, when he was at Feyenoord, he did a good job with the youth players, which is true. But Feyenoord were broke. Feyenoord had no money, so he had no choice but to blood the youth. So it wasn't an, a light bulb that come from nowhere. And um, yeah, I just think it's very strange. I mean, the Dutch media reported yesterday that he was blaming VAR for the defeat and VAR is a huge problem. Barcelona are a huge club, a massive club, and you need to get off to a good start. And obviously losing the Clasico is not good. I mean, even when he spoke to the NOS about his decision to become Barcelona manager, he would... um, he was hyping up De Jong and Griezmann by saying, I'm going to utilise them two in particular. But um, I'm not being funny. I don't think Griezmann, I don't think his talents are conducive to a manager like Koeman. I think it's, I think he's paying lip service by saying that um, he's going to play him. But if you look at Griezmann's body language, I don't think he looks particularly happy. And um, I'll be surprised if Koeman lasts the season in that respect. It will definitely be interesting. I mean, the man whose jersey is behind me there, um, Lionel Messi, obviously he wanted to leave in the summer. Um, Koeman yeah. even criticised him only um, a fortnight ago by saying he needs to do more for the team, um, etc. And, and again, whether that's merited or not, after the summer that Messi had with the club, I don't know if that was wise. The, the consensus appears to be if Barcelona um, replaced their president in the upcoming elections, mm-hmm. um, around February and March time, I believe it is, um, that Javi will be installed as manager for next season and that Koeman mm-hmm. will leave. So that'll definitely be one to watch. Um mm-hmm. I find it interesting also that Henrik Larsson is his assistant manager. I spoke to Henrik just just as he was taking the the job at Barcelona and it was clear um, that that Barcelona are are a massive club that he absolutely loves and admires and you can't turn that opportunity down. But I I agree with you, James. I think it's going to ultimately turn out to be a short-term appointment. But 45 minutes, James, has flown in. Um, The European football show, it's a new show um, with James and myself. You can follow us on Twitter, myself at Callum McFadden, at Callum CFB. You can follow James at James Rowanell. And you can follow Football CFB, where you will get quality broadcast interviews from myself with players and managers within the game. And you'll get incredible written pieces from James, also with players and managers within the game. James, mm. before we go, have you got any interviews coming up you want to mention to the to the viewers? 
Well, I always say that the next interview is always the most important. And I always like to treat all interviews the same. I and mean, we've got we've got a week coming up with the likes of uh, John McGrath and Nicola Doherty and a uh, fair few others as well. Great that Kmart Roof was so well received. But um, it's about getting a good mix. You know, I always say every player and manager has a story to tell. I mean, today we published Momo Yanzana speaking about he's playing his domestic football in Morocco. Now, on what on what football website are you going to read about things like that? So this is what I mean about the um, the way we um, approach things and doing things properly on the audio and written side. And really looking forward to it. And onwards and upwards we go. If I can just go back to what you said about the presidential elections of Barcelona, when Kuman signed, he was adamant that he was going to be there for at least two seasons. But whether that will prove to be the case, I'm not entirely sure. So, um, yeah, publishing interviews four times a week. So there's many surprises ahead and um, yeah, hopefully they're all well received. Absolutely. And, and as James just said there, he's, he, together with Football CFB, we're driving it forward in the, the audio and written side. We've got a, a team of, of others behind us as well who, who work hard too. Um, and we hope you continue to enjoy the CFB content. But from James and myself, Good evening, good morning, whenever you're watching this or listening to it, and take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. Bye.